So I have a good friend who once shared with me how he was trying to talk about his faith with his friends, his family, and his neighbors, all to little to no avail. But then he was met with an unexpected diagnosis of cancer. Cancer brings about major difficulties to one's life. Fear, regret, confusion, pain, and sometimes doubt. But one thing it produced in my friend was dependence. Dependence in the all-sufficient Savior Jesus. And he began to let his neighbors know how Christ was helping him face these various trials. And over time, the people he would share his faith with grew interested. And they desired to listen. And they were moved by this testimony of God's love and grace. Last week, Pastor Stephen preached on the mission and the means of God. That God's mission is to see a people redeemed and reconciled to him throughout the world. A people who glorify him and that live their lives in a manner of which they were created to live. And then the means that God ordained to accomplish his mission is through people. To send his people out with a purpose and a direction to reach the ends of the earth for his namesake. Calling the world to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And we learn much about this gospel reality throughout the story of the book of Jonah. We learn how God issues precepts to help guide his children into his will. We learn how God uses his providence to redirect us into his will when we kind of get off base. And we also learn how our pliancy can reflect an inward change or a desire to fulfill God's will in the world, to be in step with the mission that he has given us. But we also learn when we look at the life of Jonah much about rebellion, much about our rebellion, rebellion against the will of God. But here's what I want us to sink our teeth in as we unpack the whole book of Jonah. Now we're just doing chapters one and two this morning, but this is a principle we learn in the entire story. It's that as we experience weakness, as we are brought low in life, God's power is even more evident in, in us. Much like my friend who experienced cancer, his friends and his neighbors could not deny the power of Christ working in him. They couldn't deny it. And so they listened And many submitted to Jesus as a result. So let's begin this morning at looking at how God issues precepts to guide us into his will and how we often respond to those precepts. So look with me at verses 1 through 3. It says this, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Why? Because their evil has come up before me. And so Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish and he paid a fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. If you've ever worked in any organization, company, or foreign institution, one of the most frustrating things in the workplace is not having a clear job description. Can y'all relate? 
Yeah. It's frustrating because ambiguity promotes chaos and disorder. And we don't like to live in chaos or even work in chaos. So when we consider our lives as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't have to wonder what God's will is for us. We don't have to look to signs and be curious about, hey, did the wind blow me this way or that way? God very distinctly tells us exactly what his will is for us, what our mission in the world is, and what our purpose in life is. Because God is not an ambiguous God. He is a God of order and clarity. And he issues precepts or commands that are both for our good and the good of humanity. They are to direct our hearts. They are to direct our behavior, our thoughts, and our desires so that we would align our lives with his will. So when God speaks to Jonah in verses 1 through 3, he gives clear direction about what he as a prophet is supposed to do next. And his command is in step with his mission. When we are called by God to do certain things, he does not contradict himself. So if you hear a word from the Lord and it's in contradiction with what God's word says, then you're not hearing from him. And so when God tells Jonah, this is what I want you to do, it's right in step with what his mission is and what we see unfold in the people of God throughout history. Stephen took us down memory lane, went to Genesis 12, Genesis 3, and he showed how God's mission has been the same all the way to today, last week. And so what God gives is a command, a precept to guide Jonah that is in step with his mission. And if you'll remember, the mission of God for the people of God is to bless the nations by making much of God in the way we speak and the way we live. In the New Testament, Jesus says it this way. He says, you are to be salt and light in the world. That you have this light on a lampstand. And it's got no purpose if you cover it. You can't see it in the dark, right? So what does Jesus tell us to do with our light? It's okay to talk in church, all right? What does he tell us to do? Let it shine. Put it on a higher place so that it will shine in the darkness. This is what God's mission is for us. And check this out. When we do that, it brings order and clarity to other people who live in chaos and ambiguity. It's a grace that God extends to the lost. And in that grace, the way people respond who are living in chaos is they cease doing evil. So when we look at the text and it says this, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. God is doing something about evil going on in the world at this time. We, you know, we, we know the story real, right? Jonah can't see it. God, in his sovereign will, has decided 
that he will extend mercy to these people by making it very clear what the bad news is if they don't change. And he deals with evil in that way in this story. But as we know, Jonah, of course, rebels. And when we disobey God, we too rebel from him. But when we obey God, what happens is we enjoy him all the more because we find ourselves at peace and in right relationship with God. Precepts guide us. But sadly, when we look at the life of Jonah, we see very clearly that the first way we run from the will of God is by running away from the word of God. In God's grace to us, he's given us clear commands, but even so, we rebel, don't we? For Jonah, God said, go east to Nineveh, and he went west to Joppa. But it wasn't far enough. He then looked for a ship to go further west to Tarshish. And then, check this out, he counted a cost for his rebellion and paid a fare to go further from the presence of God. He paid money to rebel even further. Then he boarded a ship and he went as far away away as he could think to go. But my question of the text is why? Why did Jonah run? Why do we run away from the gift of God's word? Why do we run from his precepts? Now for Jonah, we can empathize a little bit. He hated the Assyrians. They were the enemies of God's people. They were brutal in their tactics. For example, when they defeated an enemy, they would shame them in several ways. One of the ways they would shame his, them would be that they would have the defeated peoples put the heads of their husbands and fathers on pikes and carry them through the city. Another way they would shame them is by skinning their defeated foes and, and attaching their skins to the outside walls. Another way they would shame them is they would take their defeated enemy, cut their legs off in one arm, and make them shake their hands before they took their life. They were an evil, brutal people. And so Jonah hated them. The rage and discontentment or discontent that he had for them, I think we can maybe empathize just a little bit. But is that why Jonah ran? For you, why do you run? Do you run from the idea of forgiveness because that would mean you have to forgive your abuser? Do you hate your neighbor in your heart because they are from a people that you fought wars against? Do you run from being gentle, humble, and kind with your children when you discipline because being harsh produces quicker results in your mind? Do you neglect your spouse because they don't respect you in the way you demand or because you are bitter in your heart over past sins? Why do you run from the precepts of the Lord when they are meant to guide you towards God's will? So why did Jonah run? The New Testament describes it this way in 1 John chapter 2 as the pride of life. And in the Old Testament, it would call it this, it would use this word to kind of put it in a position. They would call it idolatry. You see, church, we run 
because we worship at the idol of self. And at its core, we run because we think our ways are better than God's ways. Do you hear the pride in that statement? And you may never say this out loud, but in your life, this is what you functionally believe. Man, you doubt maybe that God is good or that he is all-powerful. You doubt that he is just when you see injustice in the world. But you need to know when you run, you submit to a false god. You take up with Satan against God by worshiping this idol. And you declare that you are God and God is not. And you try to flee from his presence instead of submitting to the precepts that were gifted to you in order for you to thrive in this life and flourish as humans created with the image of God in them. Precepts, not providences, are meant to guide believers. But even so, right? Because of God and his love for you, you will also experience his providence, in order to redirect you into God's will when you come off the mark. So let's look at the rest of chapter 1, and I'm going to read it so it's fresh on our minds. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea. Everybody say threw. And such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. And the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. But meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel. He had stretched out, and he'd fallen into a, what kind of sleep? Deep sleep. A deep sleep. Look at him try to escape. And the captain approached him and said, what are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up, call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other, let's cast lots. It's like rolling dice back in the day, all right? And then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots and the lot singled out Jonah. And then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for the trouble we're in. What is your business? Where are you from? What is your country and what people are you from? And he answered them, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and made the dry lands. And the men were seized by great, what? Fear. And said to him, what have you done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. And he answered them, pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I am to blame for this great storm against you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to try and get back to the land. But they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. And so they called out to the Lord. Who called out to the Lord? The sailors. Please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life. And don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done just as you have pleased. And then they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea. And the sea stopped. It's raging. 
And the men were seized by great fear of the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows to him. And the Lord appointed, appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And he was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. In the remainder of chapter 1, we see God's providence communicated through both circumstances and people. And both means are utilized to redirect us towards God's will being accomplished. Mainly the disobedient becoming obedient. But hear me, friends, the dismaying news of the rest of chapter 1 is that every act of disobedience to God has a storm attached to it. In verse 4, the text says, God threw a great wind onto the sea. It's the same word here used in 1 Samuel 18, verse 11, when Saul, King Saul, threw a spear at David. And so what is being said, man, God throws this storm, this wind at Jonah. Now the Bible, just to be clear, does not say every difficulty in your life is a result of personal sin. It does not say that. But you can be sure, it does say emphatically, that every sin will bring you into great difficulty. And Jonah's running from the presence of God brings about great difficulty in order to push him back on course. If you've ever used a compass and you need to plot a direction, what you do is you shoot an azimuth. And you record the degrees of that azimuth. And that's what you begin to follow in order to try and get your, to your destination. Prior enlisted guys, did I get it right? Okay. I didn't ask the officers. We all know about your land nav. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, you shoot an azimuth. God's precepts are like the azimuth. They tell us where we need to go. They tell us the direction we need to follow. But when you get one degree off of your azimuth, over time, you go further and further away from the intended destination. So God's providence in your life helps us to make the correction, to get back in step with his precepts. And this is exactly what he does with Jonah. He throws a storm But he also puts Jonah in a circumstance that's meant to prepare him for what God called him to do in the first place. I think we skim over this part, but the sailors, they're not Hebrew. They're not Israelites, are they? They are pagans. In fact, the text says in verse 5 that they each cried out to their own gods. Which, of course, there is only one God. And their false gods don't show up. But Jonah's does. Even when Jonah further rebels by going into the deep part of the ship to try and escape God by going to sleep. God produces such panic in the sailors that they wake him up. And they beg him to do what? Cry out to his God. God will use circumstances and he will use people to redirect you inside of his will to follow his precepts, which are good for you and they're good for humanity. This is exactly what he does. And then finally, Jonah speaks. Look at verse 9. He answered them, 
And he said this, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry lands. Jonah confesses who his God is, and his sin has been found out. And the sailors are struck with fear. But Jonah keeps running even so. Look at the depths of his sin and his rebellion. The links that he is willing to go in order to accomplish what he desires over what the Lord desires. He says, throw me over, kill me. It's kind of like uh, doing crime for the greater good, right? Like, so this stops affecting you, just kill me, take me out. And then I don't have to do what I don't want to do in the first place either, right? Church, you could know everything there is to know about God. You could have all the answers and still remain in your sin. Still commit yourself to rebellion, which exposes your heart. Exposes what you really believe and what you really worship. But one thing you need to know, friends, is you cannot thwart the will of God. Look at verses 14 through 17. It says, so they called out to the Lord. Please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life. Don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and they tossed him out into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. And the men were seized by great fear of the Lord. And pay attention. Then they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Not to their false gods, but to the one true God. And then the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah up. And Jonah spent three days in that belly of the fish and three nights. Despite Jonah's rebellion, God providentially uses him to cause Gentile sailors to cry out to him and experience salvation on this day. Amen? It's like mind-blowing, right? In the depths of Jonah's sin, God still rescues a people, still accomplishes mission. Your sin is not so great that it somehow will thwart God's will. No matter what you do, he will accomplish his plan and his purposes. And you can be in step with that or you can be out of step with that. But there's a cost for being out of step. There's a cost. There's a greater story being told here, church, that Jonah has no earthly clue about. Because one day, God would use a stubborn, stiff-necked religious Jewish leaders, just like Jonah, to kill his own son, Jesus. And bring about the salvation of all people, regardless of background, who confess and believe that Jesus died, that he spent three days in the tomb until he rose again, accomplishing God's redemptive mission and plan. That's what God's doing in the story of Jonah. What a great picture of the gospel. A plan of rescue and redemption despite the sin that you are in. And he did, did that even with you. Dear children of God, God will providentially redirect you into his will through storms and through people, circumstances and people, but it 
will always come, hear me, on the back of great sorrow, of grief. But God will do this in order to produce in you a pliancy, a moldability. So let's look at chapter 2 together. And we're going to consider one last thing. How pliancy reflects change. It says this, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. When you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. And I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. And I sank. And I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. And then you raised my life from the pit. Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. To those who cherish worthless idols, abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. Who do we just see sacrifice and make vows to God? The sailors, right? Seems Jonah might have learned a lesson. He says, I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then Jonah commanded the fish, kids, and it vomited him up on the dry land. That's my favorite part. What a sight to behold. Could you imagine, like, taking a stroll on the beach that day? <laughs> Sorry. Illustrative mind. In Jonah's prayer, it's quite evident that he has great sorrow and great grief for how things have turned out. When we deal with the consequences of our sin, there is always sorrow. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, the New Testament sheds a lot of light on what this looks like, on this principle. It says this, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. Godly grief, salvation without regret. Worldly grief, death. Repentance comes on the back of grief. But sometimes it's kind of hard, isn't it? To tell what kind of grief you actually have. Worldly or godly. When we look at Jonah's prayer, one of the things we should focus on is that he kind of focuses mainly on his circumstance. On how bad his circumstance is. But what he can't get around and what we shouldn't get around when we are in sin is what happens when we gaze up at a holy God. He says these two things about the holy temple. He says, I'll look again towards your holy temple. My prayer came to your holy temple. Jonah recognizes that God is holy and he is not. And then he resolves to obey. What this phrase tells us or should take a Jewish mind to immediately, if you were to hear this in Hebrew, is the temple and the mercy seat of God. This is the place where sins are atoned for, where the priests would 
uh, sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat so that sins would be atoned for. So when Jonah says, I will look again to the holy temple, I will look again to this place. What he's referencing is the thing he doesn't know all, the, all of the details on yet. But what he's referencing is God alone can atone for these sins, even his. Right? We, we see there's this, he really focuses on circumstance, but then he has some good theology in the prayer, right? So is he repentant or is he not? Where is he at? And sometimes, Christian, you're in sin, and you're exposed for your sin, and you confess, and you ask for, for, for forgiveness, and you begin to repent, but, but are we repentant or are we not? What kind of sorrow do we have, godly or worldly? How do we tell? Church, time exposes whether, you, whether or not you are truly pliant, whether you desire to be molded and shaped by your creator, whether you obey out of a heart of change, or are simply making behavioral modifications. And you usually are making those modifications because the circumstance you're in is quite unbearable, right? And you're miserable. Hmm. Friends, when we as believers find ourselves in sin, running from God and are found out, you got to test your heart to see whether you have true repentance or simply making behavioral changes because one will lead you to salvation the other will lead you further down the road in rebellion so to test your heart I'd encourage you to think about these three things if you can do these three things you're probably more often than not experiencing a godly sorrow the first thing confess your sins to someone in your community confess your sins to someone in your community. Now, why do I say this is a test? Because oftentimes we are in sin and we will quickly tell someone who is in another state that we knew 15 years ago or like you're with me and you pastor, or not pastor, but preach at other churches every now and then and someone from that congregation comes and talks to me but not their own pastor. If you're willing to lay your shame out and your sin before someone in your community. It's a good test for your heart to see where it's at. Second way to test whether you have godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow is this. Will you run back to the word of God and reestablish your azimuth? Will you run back to God's precepts to reestablish your direction? If you are not truly repentant, it's really hard to muster enough courage to read God's word. Like to actually get in it and study it and meditate on it and apply it. Maybe I read my verse of the day. You know, you version app gave me. Check. Or am I trying to understand the depths of my sin and the greatness of my God who can change me through the work of the Son. That, that can be a helpful test to see where your heart's at. The third way to test your heart is by meditating on the character of God and speaking with him. 
meditating on the character of God and speaking with him, praying. When we remain in our sins, we can very quickly recognize what, what kind of prayer we're praying. Are they foxhole prayers? Like there's enemy fire coming overhead, overhead and I want out of this. Or as I meditate on the very character and nature of God, am I talking with him? Am I trying to relate to him the way that he calls me to? What do my prayers look like? It's a great way to test where your heart is. But friends, time will ultimately tell what kind of repentance you have. True repentance or false. Behavioral change or heart change. Brothers and sisters in Christ, running from God is a result of your pride. Why did Jonah run? That's why. Why do we run? That's why. And you can be sure that God will bring you to your knees because he loves you and is for you. And in that weak state, get your eyes up. And cry out for deliverance. And depend on God for your salvation. And God will make his power known in your life as he rescues you. Amen? And others who don't know him in this world and in our community. What they will see is the power of Christ displayed in him freeing you. God will accomplish his will. So run with him. Don't run from him. Let's stand and pray.